Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, The House of God, Part 3 of the Double Portion Series by Pastor John. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. So I'm going to continue. Uh, we took a few weeks off of our series uh, called The Double Portion. And uh, how many of you enjoyed the first couple of those? Yes. We were talking about uh, baptism as a holistic expression of the Christian life. Uh, to be baptized means to actually be uh, immersed in the life of God, to be immersed in the community of God, and even the very story of God. So I won't rebuild all of that. You. If you're like, what is he talking about? Go back and watch uh, one of the other ones. There was a Rolling Stones that was um, the last one. There was a Follow Me and then a Rolling Stones. And this one is called uh, The House of God. And basically, we're tracking with uh, the story of Elijah passing on his mantle to Elisha and how uh, Jesus correlated uh, even the prophecy in Malachi about the spirit of Elijah returning before the awesome day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, um, and that Jesus identified John the Baptist and his ministry as that very thing. And so we see that the spirit of Elijah that was promised is this ministry of baptism, this ministry of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters actually being restored, this transferring of the life of God, transferring of the story of God, of the family of God and the house of God. So I felt the Holy Spirit lead me to actually walk us through uh, the story there where Elisha uh, is following Elijah and Elijah is uh, imparting to him this very reality. Baptism is actually a road we travel. I think often... Uh, it would be a snare to think that once we're baptized, it's, it's just a done deal and there's nothing else to it. It was just that event that we had. I was baptized when I was uh, 19 years old. Bedford Methodist Church. They have a big baptismal uh, on the second story, which is, I guess, yeah, I guess there was a second floor. But the curtain would roll back and the whole congregation could see you in the window up there. It was really cool. How many of you remember when you were baptized? Most people do. Well, in the New Testament, baptism is actually a, referred to as more than just the, the uh, time when you were immersed. Actually, baptizo, the word for baptism, uh, means to be immersed until a transformation takes place. And so baptism is a holistic experience uh, that is the Christian life. So let's look at 2 Kings, 2 Kings 2. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. The last message we did was about Gilgal. That's the rolling away of reproach. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Everybody say, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he says, yes, I know, keep silent. You shut up. <laughs> so I want to talk about this induction period. Um, I think it was a few years back that we did a, a baptismal service. I had a, a baptismal pool uh, that we set up in here, and we, we need to get another one. That was one I borrowed, but believing God that we're going to get one for our own. And uh, I know that there's some folks that want to get baptized, and so that kind of triggered uh, in me to preach through uh, what God had given me a few years ago about the subject matter of baptism, the, the immersive experience of baptism, and how there's uh, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. How, how can you say that when we look and we say, well, there's the baptism of this, that, and the other? So um, I got the, these five eyes of baptism, and we did the invitation uh, was the first in the series, this 
follow me as I follow Christ, Jesus saying, come follow me, and Elijah slapping Elisha with his cloak. Uh, he didn't actually say anything. He acted like he didn't do anything, but Elisha knew what that meant. And uh, so that's the invitation. And then the next one was the, um, uh, uh, the rolling away of the stone. We see this in, the, in their journey that they take from Gilgal. They start in Gilgal, and the significance of Gilgal was the place where the children of Israel actually passed over the Jordan out of bondage, out of slavery, to a place where they took stones out of the river and set them up and made a monument. And so that was the next message. Um, that is the initiation. That was, would be the second eye, the initiation. It's the getting wet. It's the going through the water uh, of the Jordan. And when we do that, uh, it's very much uh, part of the process of being a believer that uh, these aren't steps, but these are actual elements of baptism. But it often starts with this, and it did in my life when I received Christ, when I became born again, is to be delivered, to have uh, all of the reproach, uh, even the memory of our bondage removed from us. And that was, you can go back and watch that message, that was Rolling Stones. Um, so, But the third I today is this uh, uh, idea of induction. So I'd like to talk about what induction has to do uh, with the house of God, because they go from Gilgal to the place of Bethel. And as you see, they go from there on to Jericho and then to the Jordan, and then he's taken up on the other side of the Jordan, and then Elisha goes back uh, across the Jordan, and now that spirit of Elijah was transferred onto Elisha. As a matter of fact, he got the double portion. And I wanted so bad in the first message, I thought I was going to preach that all in one sitting, and there's just no way. Because <laughs> um, I really want to talk about the actual double portion, but this whole entire series is about that. Who wants a double portion of Elijah's spirit? Amen. So this induction, this induction has everything to do with developing an appetite for the house of God an appetite for actually dwelling in his presence. So I, I looked up this uh, word induction, and to me, it, it always stuck out to me because I'm a, a car painter and we had epoxy paint. Has anybody heard me explain this before? Epoxy paint uh, or epoxy primer is like the toughest, most radical stuff. Can't get it on anything, it won't hardly come off. But it has a catalyst and a body and when you put those two together and you mix them up, unlike other paint where you mix it up and then you can spray it on, it has in the instructions that it has an induction period of 15 minutes. You actually have to let it sit there and get used to each other. The elements actually begin to merge and bond and become something different. Two things very uh, potent and strong on their own, but worthless. If you sprayed the catalyst somewhere, it'd just be sticky. If you sprayed the other stuff out, it would do nothing. It would just be goo on the floor. But you put the two together, and it's like rock solid. It's probably some of the best paint there is to put on metal. Uh, but I was looking it up, and, and Merriam-Webster says it like this for induction period. It's, um, it's about an immersion in a, de in a developer. So the time, this is the, the explanation, <clears throat> the definition, sorry. The time that elapses between the immersion of an exposed photographic emulsion in a developer and the appearance of the photographed image. I'm going to read it again. An induction period is the time that elapses between the immersion of an exposed photographic emulsion in a developer and the appearance of the photographed image. So there's this need for us as we become believers to actually begin to develop an appetite and acclimate ourselves to the house of God, to the presence of God, to where God dwells. How many of you know that that's not exactly always comfortable? I'm not always in the mood for that. I mean, I may be in the mood for Cheetos and football or something different, but there is this, this need. Y'all ever run into people that, you know, they, they haven't got there yet as far as their ability to really connect and worship. They feel awkward. I think when I uh, first got into charismatic church or whatever, there, there, I've, I saw that, you know. I would see other people raising their hands and those sorts of things, and it's not necessarily about raising your hands, but there's this 
transformation that takes place in us that's much bigger than a worship service, okay? But it's this lifestyle that God is actually transforming us into the place where we are comfortable with our calling, comfortable with his purposes, comfortable with his stuff. There's an induction period. You're the goo, he's the catalyst. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, if that sounded uh, uh, negative, that, I didn't mean it like that, but there really is a need uh, for us. There's a, a part of our Christian walk, our baptism, our immersion into the life of God that um, is about embracing everything that is His. And I think there's a, there's a temptation to bypass that step, uh, to skip that step. We're, we're good with the getting delivered. We're good with the invitational part. And like I said, it, it's a road that we travel. Baptism, discipleship is an actual road. Our, our immersive Christian life is not a static one. We don't park it in the garage. That's religion. There's this element about the life of a disciple that is always continuing to transform and continuing to be changed into the image of Christ. And so until we see him, we are in this constant process. And I think there's a temptation to go, well, you know, I've always heard it. My granddaddy said it like that. My mama said it like that. I'm going to say it like that. And by golly, don't you try to get me to change my mind because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I already know what God's up to. But as the ministry of the Spirit was wooing us this morning, reminding us that there's a, a need for us to step into the things of God, what God is actually doing in the moment, and that, that matters. So I want to talk about the, the word Bethel. It means the house of God. Uh, and how many of you know the story of Jacob and his interaction with God and his naming that place Bethel? No stairway. We need a sign. No stairway. <laughs> Sorry. Dating myself. This is Wayne's world. I don't know if anyone knows what I'm talking about or not. Oh, goodness. Okay, so uh, let's read this story. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. This is the one where uh, some people like to pre preach about giving or tithing. That's not the point of this at all. Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. Could you imagine that? I, I got to have a really soft pillow, sorry. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham. Me. I am the, I am Yahweh, Elohim of Abraham. That matters. I am Yahweh, God of Abraham, your father, and the Elohim of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Anybody recognize that promise? That's the promise of his grandfather that was passed on to his father and now to him. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. That house of God is Bethel. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took a stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been loose previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, everybody say, if God will be with me. And keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. 
Then the Lord shall be my God. Then Yahweh shall be my Elohim. Y'all say, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So this is interesting. The, the backstory of this encounter was that uh, Jacob was born as twins and his brother Esau came out first. And from the womb, Jacob's uh, character kind of identified him and even named it, branded him. Uh, because even from the womb, he had a hold of his brother's heel and was trying to, uh, to get out first, to be the firstborn. And so I'm, I'm assuming that uh, a lot of the behavior that you see uh, go down in the rest of the story is connected to kind of his character and his always wanting to one-up his brother. And, and, you know, if you're born on the same day, I could see that. Who's the firstborn? Well, it doesn't matter. I had a hold of you. <laughs> But you know the story, or if you don't know the story, uh, when it came time for the father to die or was getting old, he wasn't actually dead yet, but he was getting old and feeble, he was passing off uh, the family uh, fortune, the, the whole household goods, everything, uh, to the firstborn son. That was tradition uh, in the ancient Near East, not just Israel. And um, Esau would have been the one in line for that because technically he was born first. And you know the whole story about him putting on a furry, uh, a furry coat and going in there and fooling his dad because he was blind and getting getting the blessing spoken over him and stealing it. But even though he bought it, Esau sold it to him for a bowl of soup. And Esau is furious and wants to kill him, and so he has to leave. And his parents say, "Go to our relatives there in Haran, and." Go find a girl to marry from our relatives and not here. Get out of here because the women here are crazy. And Esau, where, uh, <laughs> Esau marries a woman just to spite his parents from Canaan. Uh, anyways, that's the backstory. While he's out running from his brother, and you can see in his response to God, as God shows up and he actually begins to bless him, his interpretation is what he's going to get out of it, what he's most immediately feeling like he wants and he needs. His interpretation is that, God, if you are going to be with me, that means you're going to take me back to the land of my father and make things right without my brother wanting to murder me anymore. So that's what he's got in his frame of reference. And I love how he says, well, if you're going to do that, I'm going to give you a tenth. And yet that's not really what the Lord was asking for him. That was just him being scared and overwhelmed with the whole thing. That was his response. Now, I'm not trying to direct anybody in the way of tithe or anything like that. I'm just pointing out the obvious facts of what was going on there, that there is a place that we can live where God is actually blessing us and speaking to us and inviting us into his very life and into his story so that everything about our life is so ridiculously blessed that it's all his, not 10%, so that we can actually mirror our Father and be generous. It's, it, and who knows? When we actually learn how to step into and live like that, the, the lid gets so blown off of it that you can't even believe that this is your life. Just FYI. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I, I don't think we need to be worried about making deals with God. If he's going to make sure that I don't die or make sure that I don't starve to death, I'm going to give him 10% of what I ascertain he's giving me. It's like it's, he's actually opened up everything to us, everything. If, if we think he's cheap, he'll let you think that way and he'll let you kind of experience that a little bit. But yet God, if you keep going and reading the story of Jacob, God is consistently uh, popping up in his life, probably not on the timeline that Jacob expected. I think in Jacob's mind, I think his mother said, go away for a few days. Go to our relatives, you know, until the, your brother's wrath has subsided. You know, maybe that's a year Maybe two. It's like 24 years or something that he gets stuck over there working for Laban. Does everybody know that story? He goes to the relatives. The dad starts taking advantage of him, makes him work, fools him with the wrong woman. He winds up getting both daughters out of the deal. And while he's there, he's messing around with the sheep, and God actually shows up to him and says, you know, your father-in-law is doing you dirty, but I'm going to bless you. I'm going to really bless you. And gives him some crazy scheme of how to raise the sheep and the goats and all that and with a spotted and speckled, you all know the story. And he, he gets to a place where God shows up to him and says, he's going to change it again on you. It's time for you to go home. 
And he reminds him, hey, I'm the God of Bethel. Remember that? I'm the God where I met you the first time. I'm that God. I think it's strange that God would have to remind him that he's that God, the God of promise. See, Jacob's eyes, I think, were fixed on him being the householder and the firstborn and inheriting the territory and the things, really the authority to rule over his brother, who I think he thought was an undesirable character because of his wild, manly stuff out in the woods. Um, But what God was actually doing with Jacob through Jacob was giving him the inheritance of all inheritance that he would actually carry in his body the Messiah. Yeah, I'm just going to let that sit there a minute. We sometimes come up with all manner of ideas of what this is about. I think that it's easy to think, ah, I just need God to get me out of a jam. Okay, God delivered me. God is going to set me up. He's going to bless me. He's going to take care of me. I'm going to have these exchanges and these deals that I do with God. But the reality is that it's bigger than that. You actually carry inside of you the Messiah the deliverer of the whole entire world. So induction, it's about becoming acclimated to the things of God. Things that are not initially or immediately uh, naturally normal to us. It's learning to live in His presence. It's learning how to become a part of His family. It's learning how to change and adapt to the actual purposes of God. There's a re-gearing of ourselves towards God's way instead of our own. And that's what he's after. How many of you remember the gospel of the kingdom? What is the first phrase that pops in your head? Jesus' message, the one that John the Baptist was, repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's within your reach. It has come upon you. It's come into the earth, and the kingdom of God is ours to actually use, to lay hold of. Now, nobody likes the word repent. It's like the word obey. I joke around that those are Christian cuss words, you know, but because you think of, you know, going to Petco and signing up for classes for Fido, you know, when you think of obedience. But it's a really, really great concept. And this idea of repent, it just means to change. It means to change. And I think that when we come up with a Christian expression of our faith, that we feel like we've arrived and we park the car in the garage, so to speak, of our faith. It won't budge that we're actually stepping outside of Discipleship, we're stepping outside of what faith really is. Faith is this constant challenge to repent or to change, to actually lay hold of the kingdom of God is fluid, it's not static. And it's stepping into the very story of God. You've been grafted into the people of God. We've been included with their story. All, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I think we're, I, I'm constantly challenged Uh, even in Christian circles, by this religious spirit that we are living our life and God's given us this amazing gift of uh, eternal life and then the rest of our life, we're just trying to get him to bless what we're doing. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. And it can work that that way for a while. We can go to Haran and work for our father-in-law for 24 years and get messed around. But at some point, God is gonna say, hey, It's time to go back. Time to go back. Time to get back on track with the plan of God, with the story of God. I think that our resistance to change is what keeps us from stepping into the things of God. This idea that we've already got it all figured out. Uh, last week, I was speaking at a, another church that I helped plant about two miles from here. And um, the word the Lord gave me for the year uh, is change. As a matter of fact, growth uh, is the word for us. I, I felt real 
consolation of the Holy Spirit, not to be pressured to come up with big, long prophecies, but as the pastor of the church to actually lock into uh, the voice of God of what he's, what he's calling. And so this um, Revival 30 that we're going to next week, it's, it's really interesting that the way in which they have uh, packaged or uh, messaged what they expect this to be about is called the commissioning. We're celebrating 30 years of the revival that broke out in Toronto. And glory to God, it was amazing. For 12 years, they had revival meetings like six days a week. I think they took Mondays off where the Spirit fell on people. And all kinds of crazy things happened. People getting healed like crazy, people getting set free, people getting launched into ministries. And uh, I think that being a catch-the-fire church and even in a charismatic expression, there's a, there's a, a longing to see God move like that. And I love it when the Spirit falls and He just takes away my ability to stand. And Lord, you could do that right now. If you just fell on this place, come on with it. But they're specifically focusing on the Great Commission. In other words, taking all of the download of the Holy Spirit, the power of God moving, and actually turning it to what God's asked us to do, which is to go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the Trinity. And so we're just focusing on what that looks like. I, I, don't, I can't imagine uh, what all that's going to be. Maybe there's you know, a holy moment or two or 50 coming next week. But, um, but I've taken it seriously that, that there's this need for us to step into what God is doing, not just here in this little church, but in our movement uh, and even in the charismatic movement, you know, the, the, what do they call themselves? The Revi Revival Alliance, that whole group that's coming to speak and to bless and to, you know, launch us into this commissioning. It's going from the revival to now outwardly touching the world. And, and, you know, we can get all fired up about doing that, about evangelism, and everybody gets awkward and kind of froze up. I don't know how to do that. Really, the, the method of evangelism is this thing, the hearts of the fathers being returned to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers. It's discipleship. It's right here in our midst. That is the way in which God designed it, and we don't need to try to change that. We just need to do it. We just need to step into it and embrace it. So uh, I know that right now, uh, as I share and shift, you know, I, I, I feel like there's sometimes an expectation in an ultra-charismatic setting like this to, to have meetings that blow the roof off and uh, everybody's on the floor, that kind of thing. I love that. But there is actually a shift taking place in the heart of God to go after and to develop and to grow and to actually have transformation so that the incredible presence of God actually causes transformation in our lives. So this repent thing, that, that, you know, that goes for everybody all the time. Repent is like a daily thing. It's a, I, I think like this. I know how John thinks. I know John's creature comforts. And the Lord's actually inviting me into a place of dwelling with him into the induction. I don't think that the induction is like, like I said, the, these eyes aren't stair steps. They're elements that are all in this immersive experience uh, of being baptized. The going in the water is not the deal. That's just the beginning of the deal. The, the water's getting high in here. Like we're in the water together. Amen. We're in the river of God. We've stepped into the baptismal waters of the Jordan. Does that make sense? If I can speak metaphorically. So here's a quote from Matthew Bates. I've been quoting him lately. I've been in a book called Why the Gospel. It's all about disciple making and about preaching the gospel. And it's wonderful. I love it. Uh, but he talks about this subject matter in there and talks about confirmation bias. How many know what confirmation bias is? It's like when you get on Facebook and you're like, no, you shut up. God didn't really say that. God said this. No, you shut up. You know that it's pointless to get on Facebook and <laughs> seriously, trying to change somebody's mind, you're never going to do it. Never. I, I don't even post, you know, I see people uh, post 
a scripture and a little thing, you know, a, a little motivational uh, meme or something. I, I just don't do it because um, I've had my ear bit off <laughs> by other believers that are zealous about their opinion, and that's called confirmation bias. He says this, confirmation bias and self-centered rationalism, I'm sorry, rationalization seem to know no limits. Without intentionality, we will only find the Jesus we want, the one who doesn't ask us to change, rather than the Jesus who longs to transform us. And what he's talking about there is intentionality to go after God, to actually see God face to face. He, that whole part of the book, he's talking about this idea of transformative viewing. And the idea, I think on Christmas Eve, I showed you guys a graph that this guy had done about the glory of God and how the glory of God was actually originally intended to be carried in the earth by human beings, that we were created as vessels to embody the glory of God so that all of creation, including one another, can actually be blessed and enriched by his glory. That means his fame, his character, his nature. What, what can be said about his goodness? That he is always good. We embody that. That's what we were created to do. But as we know, we tripped all of fallen short of the glory of God because they've sinned. And the glory then was dropped. And Jesus came, the perfect image of God, carrying the God's glory, and so that as we transformatively view Jesus, that's how we are restored and transformed, like that uh, emulsion being dipped into the, um, what was the word? The developer. So that God's glory can once again be emitted throughout the earth, can actually be uh, transforming everything around us when when. When you are looking at Jesus, when Jesus is in your sights, you are changing into that same image. And when you are changing that image, Romans 8 says that all of creation gets excited. It begins to heal. When God actually shows up in you, it heals the planet. Problem is we tend to see what we want to see in God. That's the confirmation bias, you know. We, we make up our minds. God is so big and expansive, He blows our mind on a regular basis, and we get stuck on what we think He said, even though He did say that. Maybe there was more to it. How many of you do that? You read the Bible and you're like, I didn't never see that there before. I've read that 48,000 times. I never noticed that. It's just the greatest thing ever. Here's an example, Genesis 31. There's this weird thing going on. Even though Jacob has had that promise, he's had a, an encounter with God that so rocked him that he poured oil on a rock and decided that this was the gateway to heaven, that the uh, trials and struggles of life, especially dealing with people like Laban, had just watered down even his understanding of who God was. And God shows up to him like I talked about a minute ago. This is a story where he shows up when he's serving Laban, and he says to him, Genesis 31, 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise and get out of this land and return to the land of your family. And if you skip down to verse 19, it says, now Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And you hear when he starts telling his wives, hey, we got to get out of here. Your dad's been jacking me around. He's about to mess me around again. And the God that appeared to me before appeared to me again and told me to get out of here. This is the God of Bethel. Not just any God, the God of Bethel. This is where Yahweh Elohim matters. Well, he had actually seen the creator God, whose name is Yahweh. And yet they were idols there that uh, Rachel decided to steal from her dad and sit on him or something, put him under the saddle. And Laban had chased him down and said, why on earth have you stolen my household gods? But we'll see in this next story, we're going to go to Genesis 35, uh, starting in verse 1. 
We talk about the season of the kings, which was much later, hundreds of years later than this. And their struggle with the surrounding people groups influencing them to worship other gods and that always causing problems. It didn't start with the kings. It started back way back here. Genesis 35, 1 through, 15, uh, 1 through 15, no, 1 through 7, sorry. Genesis 35, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled uh, from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, just to give you a little bit of uh, background on this point in Jacob's life, <clears throat> Jacob had already had the experience, if you all know the story of Jacob's life, He'd already had the experience of facing Esau, wrestling with God, God putting his hip out of socket, and him being able to return to the land of Canaan, this time very humbled, this time not caring about his possessions. He was like going to give them all to Esau, just let me come home. I don't even care anymore about all that stuff. He just wanted to be back in his homeland. And so they get back in their homeland. Now he's got kids, lots of kids, the whole uh, what we know is now is the, tr the, the children of Israel, right? Or the, at least the fathers of the children of Israel. So there's his 12 sons, and they're dwelling in that land of Canaan. And somebody rapes their sister, Dinah. You all remember that story? And a couple of the brothers actually trick the guys because the, the dad of the uh, Jack the Ripper comes out and he says, hey, uh, my son just is ate up with your daughter. Let's do this. Let's join families. We'll marry your daughters. You, you can marry our daughters. And they say, ah, the brothers say, all right, tell you what, y'all get circumcised because everybody's got to be circumcised. And so they say, such a deal. What a deal. They got more cattle and stuff than we do. This is going to be a good deal for them. They all get circumcised and while they're in pain, they go in there and they just take vengeance for the rape of their sister and wipe them out. Wipe them out. And Jacob now Instead of being the heel grabber, he's like, ah, what have you done? They're going to come after us. They're going to kill us. And he is on the run with his whole family. And that's the setting of this story, okay? While he's panicking for his life because of this massive disaster that has just happened in the neighborhood. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel, go to the house of God and dwell there. And make an altar there to God the one who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress, that God, and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which... Uh, were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Sechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. And this is one of those things I've never noticed. I've read this so many times, I never noticed this. He called the place something different this time. He called it God of the house of God. In other words, it went from, uh, his relationship went more into the person of God to understanding that his relationship with God uh, was not static. It wasn't, a, it wasn't necessarily a place, even though he went to this place that was special. It was about God actually being part of his life and him being part of God's life. Skip down to verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan. Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. So Jacob's initial thought of his relationship with God was that he would escape the wrath of his brother. 
And then a step beyond that, that he would return back and get blessing and prosperity. And yet, as we said before, God was actually up to something bigger, that the deliverance of the whole human race was in his body, that the promise of the Messiah was he was carrying. Kings were going to come from his line. Where he thought he was getting out of the deal, uh, the possession of the household and rulership over his brother and all of his father's goods, God was actually in the business of transforming his identity and his purpose. God actually changes his name, his very character. So Jacob, I think I have a slide about Jacob. There you go. It means supplanter. It means to supersede and replace. It's this desire to actually get one up on his brother. And I think that there is a Christian expression, we call it like hashtag blessed life, that can turn into us just wanting to get one up on the rest of the world because we're blessed by God. But God is actually in the process of changing our identity and our purpose to align with what he's doing, not him just coming and blessing what we're doing. It matters what we look at. I just love the ministry of the Spirit that that came out. Talking about seeing Jesus. Even the song list. Like, wow, how helpful is that? Bates says this, images disciple us. We've been doing reading this book as a family, me and Lauren and the kids. And this particular part of the book really got my attention. Images actually disciple us. Like, well, how does that work? Images disciple us by evoking desire. Desire is not worship, but it's a close relative and a fair index of spiritual health. You are what you love. Uh, as philo, philo, uh, sorry, as philosopher, theologian James K.A. Smith puts it, we are being transformed into the images that we desirously view and the habits that they reinforce. So the concept is like this. Uh, I think in the book he asked questions like, so what have you been viewing lately and how is that transforming you? Uh, yeah, because images disciple us. The idea there of you see Elijah and Elisha, he says, I will not leave you. Remember at the end of the story, he says, can I have a double portion of your spirit? He says, well, that's a hard thing. But if you see me, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it'll be done for you. And he refuses to let go of where God has called Elijah to go. He said, the Lord has called me to go on to the next place. Stay here. No way. No way. As, as God lives and my, as your soul lives and God lives, I will not leave you. See, what we view actually transforms us because of our desire. It's about what we want. And so when we're looking at things, we are imagining or even uh, reaching out with our desire to lay hold of that image that we want to see ourselves there. Lately, I've been looking at antique trucks. I don't know why. Antique trucks. I see myself pulling up here to church in this newly restored antique truck. Not that that's wrong, but I need to be focused all the time on Jesus. What is Jesus doing? What is he saying? Where is he going? Instead of my idea of what Jesus is, because if I don't, I'll come up with, we got all kinds of Jesuses out there. I'll skip the list, but there's all kinds of expressions that, that people put Jesus in. If we don't first come to Jesus, give our primary mental and emotional attention to his glorious image, then we will never see in the experiential way necessary to bring about the transformation God desires for us. We must allow our vision of what is good, true, and beautiful to be changed by learning Jesus-shaped habits. And then we must embody these changes through discipleship. Again, this is from that book, Matthew Bates. So getting acclimated looks like hungering after God, actually developing an appetite for the things of God. 
I'm doing a lot of fasting right now, and I think fasting is necessary. I said this the other day, but fasting isn't like, it's powerful. Jesus said that some of these don't come out except by prayer and fasting, but it's not that uh, the devil goes, oh, they're fasting. I better stay in today. And it's not that God goes, I'm so proud of you. You're fasting. I think I'm going to dole out more cookies your direction. That's not what makes fasting powerful. The, the deal with fasting is that we develop inside of ourselves a hunger for the things of God. And now that is what matters because he's already offered it and laid it out there. But our flesh being weak and vulnerable to the elements, we often feed it whatever makes us feel better. There is a, 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 a thing that God does on purpose with us to cause us to hunger after him to develop an appetite for the things of God that the Holy Spirit is wooing and bringing us into. And we can tap into that by fasting. Not like we're trying to earn brownie points. It's that we're quieting our flesh, tuning the radio. Thank you, Alan. Yes, tuning into the frequency of what God's doing. It begins to drown out the other noise when we stop the, I'm hungry and I want to do this thing that my flesh wants to do. Y'all, y'all tracking with me? Yeah. We're about to, we're about to um, take communion here in a minute. You know, in Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord talks about, here's Moses talking to them about, you're about to go into the promised land. Don't make the mistakes that your parents made in the wilderness. God actually led you into the wilderness on purpose to hunger. He fed you with manna, yes, but he led you out there to hunger on purpose so that you would actually develop an appetite for the things of God. So that when you get into the promised land and all the blessing and all the you know fruit that was huge and all of the abundance, you wouldn't forget how to hunger after God. And God still does that for us. Jesus, through the person of Jesus, we can step into his victory because where the Israelites failed there, Jesus, when he was baptized... What was the first thing that he did? Was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, right? He was acquiring a taste for the voice of God. It is written, he would say, as the devil was tempting him. It is written, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why he causes us to hunger, to make us understand or make us acclimated, uh, I was going to say incubate. That's not the right word. I forgot my own word. Inducted to induct us into that image that we would actually begin to stick and gel with the things of God. Whew. That's a place where we're invited to dwell. Not because God wants us to, to suffer or something like that. It's so that we would actually be aligned with what he wants to do. Amen? All right, so we're going we're gonna to take communion on that note. And I'm just going to summarize John chapter 6. I was focusing on that this week. John chapter 6 is the story where Jesus fed 5,000 people. Jesus had the crowds clamoring after him. They just couldn't believe it. This is Messiah. Look at these miracles. Who can do these miracles that he's doing? Nobody. It says in John chapter 6 that after he fed them all, they were going to take him by force and make him king. They were going to go ahead and do the inaugural deal and make him king. How many of you know that that was his purpose was to become king? And yet that wasn't the right time or the right way or the right place for that to go down. And he disappeared off to stage left, goes up on the mountain to pray. The disciples row across the lake and he comes and he walks across the lake And then that same crowd that ate of the loaves and fish the day before when they realized Jesus hadn't gone up with them in the boat were looking for him. And so they crossed the lake too to find him. And when they found him, they said, how did you get over here? Now he could have said, oh, guess what? I can walk on water. But he didn't. He said, you're coming after me. You're seeking me, not because... 
of the sign he said you're not com- you're not seeking me because of the sign but you're seeking me because you ate of the loaves and were filled in other words you're not you're not coming after me for who I am you're coming after me for what I can do for you your perception of who I am to you and I have given you a sign so that you would indeed know that I'm the Messiah that's kind of a big deal because then he starts talking about the bread. He said, your fathers ate of the manna, the bread from heaven, and they're dead. Because they said, well, give us more food to eat. Then we'll believe you. Like, give us this perpetual sustenance, and then we'll know that you're God. Your fathers ate of the manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But I'm here to give you the bread of life, that he who eats of this bread will never die. And they said, say what? He said, my flesh. My flesh is the bread that's come down from heaven. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part with me. A lot of them were like, what? And he goes on to explain it, that it's about the indwelling, that I live with you and you live in me to unweird it for you. But there's this need for us to actually understand that We need the humanity of Jesus. We need to feed on who he is. That our humanity actually needs to take, absorb into us the very life of Jesus. So our phrase around here that I think I'm going to put up on the wall there is living his life after him. This baptismal experience, this uh, immersive experience, this induction period of us being transformed in his image It's not a pie-in-the-sky deal that we're just like waiting for. No, it happens daily that we actually begin to live his life. And that's what it means when we take communion. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com dot com slash give.